0: Guys, you can open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I do have it on the screen, as you can see, and you're welcome to follow along that way. I will be moving to a few other verses quickly, so if you're not familiar with flipping the pages one to the other, this might be a better way. But I do encourage you to have your Bible open, and uh, you gotta get used to it somehow, right? Finding these verses, I think it's always better if you have it in your hands, you see it with your eyes, and you kind of remember where it's on the page, it makes it easier to find it the next time and the next time. All right, today we're talking about practical tribulations, and I've given it a subtitle, Tribulations with Work, Trouble with Work. and believe me there's there's so many different directions this sermon can take there's a, a great potential for bunny trailing because there's actually a i hope you know what i mean by that just straying off into one thought or the other uh there, there are many important subjects here by the grace of god i'd like to take you through the entire chapter and let me give you a brief overview of what paul has been dealing with up until this point uh matter of fact Maybe I can give you the title of the sermon. There we go. Practical Tribulations, Troubles with Work. And up until this point, Paul has been dealing with this persecution, primarily in chapter 1, and then prophetical tribulation, chapter 2, the first part of it. And then at the end of chapter 3, Paul starts in on the practical aspect of tribulations, how we handle it. Uh, We talked about God's plan, knowing God's long-term, big-picture plan helps us process this. And then today, we're going to focus in on some very practical problems that that believers deal with and how we should deal with those things. So let me, if I can, read. I want to go. We're going to read all the verses to this chapter. We're going to deal with the first five and then the last two and then come back to the middle. So we'll move around just a little bit. Before we do that, let's Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, please help us this morning. We thank you for the good singing that we got to hear. Lord, we look forward to the day that we can do it together again in person. And even more, we look forward to the day that we can be there with you, standing in your presence and singing, not just with each other, but with the choirs of heaven's angels. And Lord, um, bowing down before you and singing holy, 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 and how great thou art. And all these songs that stir our hearts now, oh, how they're going to stir us one day. I pray that, Lord, you please guide my lips now. Please sit here in this room with me. Fill me, Lord, take control, speak to our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so let me, let's go through the first five verses. There's some introductory material that I think is important to note. Verse one says, finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. So Paul knows, his plan is to continue preaching. He wants to finish the work that God gave him to do. So, so brethren, pray that we have open doors. Pray that we're not hindered. Why? Verse two, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. Not everybody's gonna sit down and say, okay, let, let me hear what you have to say. Not everybody's open to this idea. And listen, it's not just wickedness that hinders the preaching of of truth and the gospel, unreasonableness, people not willing to sit down and and think it through, get all the information. They have one side of the story, but they don't want the other side of the story so they can make a well-informed decision. Verse three, but the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. I love Paul's focus here. Look at what he's concerned about. Verse one, the word of the Lord. Verse three, the Lord's going to establish you and keep you. Paul is concerned about the Bible and other believers. His personal safety, the reason he's concerned about that is more, more because if he gets hindered you know, personally, if he gets hurt or imprisoned, then he's not going to be able to get as much preaching done. He's not going to be able to uh, comfort and console and... Confirm these believers like you'd want to. Verse four, we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So Paul recognizes that in this present evil world, that's what he calls it in Galatians chapter one, this present evil world is going to be against the dissemination of truth, the preaching of the gospel, they are going to make it difficult for believers to stay faithful. They are going to try to pressure them out of the faith. And verse five, I, I love where Paul's heart is at in this. Direct, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Now these believers, I think it's pretty clear from first Thessalonians and what we have in second Thessalonians, they, they love God, they do. Paul says, I wanna see the Lord directing your heart into that love, to go a little deeper into it. I wanna see that personal, intimate relationship that you have had, I wanna see it continue, I wanna see it grow. You can see that in verse four, can't you? That they both do and will do. So it's not that you're not doing it now, I wanna see this thing go forward. And then at the end of verse five, into the patient waiting for Christ, because Paul knows that's when the persecutions. That's when the tribulations are going to ultimately be be finished. But in the meantime, stay madly in love with God. Don't let the unreasonable and wicked men try to pressure you out of that. So the world is going to offer this outside pressure and they're going to present all sorts of different tribulations. That's from outside. Now, that's the first part of the Chapter. I'm gonna to skip to the end and show you how Paul closes this. Forgive me for all the scrolling. If you're like me, that kind of bothers my eyes. So verse 17, Paul closes the letter by saying this, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Now, the reason he puts it like that is because Paul did not write his own letters. There's only one epistle or letter that Paul wrote with his own hand, the whole thing. And that's the book of what we call the book of Galatians, the the letter to the Galatians. Uh, All the other ones, Paul had a, let's call it a secretary, amanuensis, that wrote the letter and then Paul would sign it. And his little tagline would always be something like, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. So Paul would always sign off by saying, and his benediction, as you can see, this Bible program put that word there. He's calling for grace on all of these believers. Now, why call for that? Because putting up with the outward pressure from the world, and as you're going to see today in verses six down to 16, the inward pressure that you can sometimes have from other believers who are not living biblical lives, The outward and inward pressure is not easy to cope with. And in order to stay faithful and to walk in that loving relationship with God and stay patient for the coming of Christ, you're gonna need God's help with that. A big extra dose of grace. So Paul finishes up, on that note. Now, that being said, I've given you the, the beginning of the chapter is almost like a summary of what Paul has been saying up until this point. He, In chapter one, he dealt with how the enemies of the gospel have been persecuting believers. In chapter two, he gave them this prophetic outlook. And as I mentioned, let me just put this back up. He gave them this prophetical outlook and you know things are gonna get worse. The mystery of iniquity is already working false preachers are out there trying to give you this distorted, perverted image of, of Christ, this the wrong picture of Christ. So you're going to have to work through that. And then by the end of chapter two, Paul dives into some of the more practical thoughts and how to deal with the tribulations of life, whether they're prophetic, whether it's persecution, uh, the world just hating you, and then trouble within the church. Verses six to uh, six to 16, very practical stuff that Paul's going to deal with. So let me move back up here and what i'd like to do is read the entire passage and then we're going to go back and and i will jump around a little bit uh just to i'm working with the outline trying to put my thoughts in in a nice succinct order here so if you would read with me starting in verse number six it says now we command you brethren in the name of our lord jesus christ that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, you might remember that tradition in chapter 2, that was by the, the things that they were taught by the apostles preaching or writing. So that's the apostolic tradition, and that is the equivalent. It's synonymous with saying the Bible. It's, it's what we, the information we have in the Bible verse 7 for yourselves know how ye ought to follow us for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you verse 8 neither did we eat any man's bread for naught for nothing we wrought means we worked but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you be, in verse 9 not because we have not power so he had authority to take an offering from them, take a paycheck, if you will, take a meal. So he says, it's not that I'd lack the authority to do that, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. Now that's just an old English way of saying example, right? Ensample. Paul says, the reason I did it the way I did, is not because I lacked authority, but I was trying to make a point. I wanted you to see the necessity and the importance of hard work. Verse 10, for even, sorry for the scroll leading in. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Man, if we pushed that today, there'd be a lot of hungry folk, yeah? Verse 11, for we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. Now, I think that's a broad statement. When he says they're walking disorderly, they're not walking biblically. The order for a Christian life. Who orders our steps? You find this many, many times, especially in the Old Testament. In the book of Psalm chapter 119, David says, order my steps in thy word. So we take the Bible and we let God order our lives. How do I go about every part of my life? So verse 11, some walk among you disorderly. It's chaotic, it's unruly, they're just doing it their way. And then after making this broad statement, Paul narrows it down, he zooms in on this, working not at all, but our busy bodies. And that's really the focus of, our, of the lesson today, the sermon today is that particular practical trouble that we find all around us in the world and also in the church. Verse 12, now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So instead of knocking on your neighbor's door, mooching off of him, I hope you're familiar with that word. I've, I've used it a few times. Instead of mooching off others, man, go get a job, buy your own bread. Now, now this is the very nice way to say it, with quietness they work. Shut up and do your job is what he's saying. Verse 13, but ye, brethren, be not weary, in well-doing. So it's not like all the Thessalonians were lazy. Some were walking disorderly among them. And and that creates problems for the ones that are working hard. And Paul says, guys, listen, I, I know you got tribulations from the world. You got tribulations down the road, like prophetically, it's gonna get worse. And then you got supposed brethren within the church who are walking disorderly. guys. Keep pushing on. Don't let this stuff wear you out. Keep doing right, even though you got all this trouble around you. <clears throat> Verse 14, if any man obey not our word, <clears throat> sorry, by this epistle, note that man. Whew. This is serious stuff. I want you to think about how it would, what would happen if we applied this? Note that man, point him out. Point him out and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now, I assume, right, if you tuned into this live stream, you're probably a Bible-believing person. I I hope so. And if not, I hope you will be soon. But I believe all the verses, not just the convenient ones, not just the ones that are politically correct, you know, that fit in with what society thinks is okay. I believe in this. I believe this is the right way to handle these sort of practical troubles. Note that man, that's serious, and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now notice Paul's quick to point out in verse 15, yet count him not as an enemy. Well, he's probably gonna count you as an enemy if you obey verse 14. But our attitude in this is not to hurt him, is to help him. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Why would, why would he say as a brother, brotherly love? We're trying to help him as a brother. And this is true, right? Let's be, let's offer gender equality here. This is true also of, of a sister in Christ. So it doesn't matter there, but let's admonish them. Let's, let's tell them what, what he's doing wrong so that he can get this thing straight. In verse 16, now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Now I'm gonna pick it up in verse 16. Like I said, I'm gonna move around. We've read the whole passage, tried to give you a decent understanding of what's going on. Let me start off here in verse 16 with with my first point. Point one, the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage. And the purpose, I think Paul lays it out in verse 16 real well. The purpose of writing all this is to provide uh, peace with men and with God peace with men and God. Notice at the end of verse 16, the Lord be with you all. It's a corporate thing. The apostle wants all the Thessalonians to get along. And while they are experiencing unity, the Lord also can join in on that and and make that that group effort, that corporate effort even better. The Lord be with you all. So this, is, this message is not just okay, you folks that are doing right, I want you guys to have peace and the ones that are doing wrong, just get rid of them. No, everybody, even the ones that are walking disorderly, if they will take a listen to this and make the necessary adjustments, the idea is for everybody to get along because let's be honest, all of us are going to make some wrong steps. There are times in our lives where we get a bit disorderly. And what we have in this passage is a way to to, uh, round off the rough edges so that we can reconcile, so we can work through the practical tribulations that everybody, every human being offers and we can get along. Let me show you a verse about this. And I think this is a verse that's fairly familiar, worth looking at nonetheless. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And friend, it is. There is something, it's just the way God set it up. He, within the Godhead, before there was anything, there's perfect unity. There's perfect fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There they are, three in one. Perfect unity. And then they create. Mankind, they create, the, God, I say they, right? Because I'm referring to the Trinity, but God, he creates man, brings forth the woman out of the man. And you know what he says? Two, one, he He desires that unity. He wants people to get along. And the passage today is gonna show us some of the challenges to that and then how to fix some of those those challenges. But notice also in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding when it comes to peace. A lot of folks sit back and think peace is going to happen magically, like a miracle. I'm just sitting here, I'm not gonna change anything, all these tribulations, without, within, I'm just gonna let God just come down and give me a peace that passes all understanding. Okay, now now please understand, God, the Lord of peace, giving you peace, there's something, there's something uh, supernatural about it, but let's get the whole picture here. It says in that verse, give you peace always by all means, by all means. When Jesus stood on the side of the boat, when there was that storm and the apostles were scared for their lives, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus stood up and said, peace be still. The waters then calmed down. If the wind and the waves had not obeyed the word of Christ, there would have been no peace. There would have been no calm. So what I mean to say by this, when we read the Lord give you peace by all means, how does peace come into our lives? Can we just sit back, do nothing and expect peace to show up? Expect all the anxiety and the storm in your heart to just calm? I don't think so. What, what, it, what needs to happen is the word of the Lord needs to be infused. It, you, you need to receive that, that word from God and then apply it. Now, we have the words from God. What we need is an application. We need obedience to those words. When, when Jesus says to the wind and waves, be still, they obeyed. Then there was peace and quiet. Then the calmness came in. If you'll notice, there's always a running, I wanna say a theme almost, but this idea you'll see over and over again in the Bible. Before you find peace, there's always righteousness. Peace follows righteousness. So much so that you'll find a verse in the New Testament says the peaceable fruit of righteousness. What is the fruit of righteousness? When you do things right, obedience, doing it God's way, walking orderly, peace. This includes inner peace, right? Just personal peace, but also peace with other people. When everybody falls in line doing it God's way. So this is the purpose of of these verses, all right? Peace with men, peace with God. Now, point two, we're gonna look at the problem, the problem that is presented in this passage. I'm really working hard on the Ps today. Problem presented in the passage. All right, verse six, let's look at the problem here. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. So we've—I've already mentioned it briefly, but this is a, a brother who is living an unbiblical life. That's the broad view of what's going on. When we get down to verse ten. Now you see how I could bunny trail here because we could start talking about all sorts of ways that people walk disorderly and are not living biblically, but let's focus in on on the one problem that Paul zooms in on here, verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So as you can see on the slide below me, point two, we're, we're dealing with the problem here in the passage, the practical trouble or tribulation that's going on, there's laziness which leads to meddling, which I think maybe is an updated word for busybody, but laziness which leads to meddling. All right, so verse 11, we see it here. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. All right, so let's talk about both laziness and meddling just for a moment. Let me say this about laziness. I I think it's a much bigger problem than we realize. And what I I mean by that is not like quantity, like how many people are lazy. Um, I, how would we quantify that, right? Who gets to decide what's lazy and what's not? I guess lazy is the guy who doesn't work as hard as you. Right? That's probably how we would think of that. But when I say laziness is a bigger problem than we, than we imagine b- because of its destructive power, because of how much how much chaos it can introduce into any system. Now you think about this, no matter what the, what it is, if it's your machine, if it's a machine, if it's your body, um, any institution, marriage, uh, a a business, if all of the parts are not working as they should, uh, working optimally, fulfilling their desired uh, purpose or uh, designed purpose rather, if they're not living up to that potential, Going slower than they should. Well, that's going to, that, that slows down the whole thing. That can destroy the whole process because that one person or that one part is not working optimally. Now, let me see if I can point this out. I, I think this needs to be said kind of like preferatory to this. Verse 10, look at this. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now, there's a big difference between he would not work and he cannot work. So please understand that. I wanna make that clear before we get into this because some folks have, have, whether it's a physical disability or something going on in their life, they, they actually cannot. They do have a desire to work, but they just cannot work. That's different with the guy who will not work. He doesn't want to. Right? He would not work. So that's that's a, a different thing. That's the problem here. That's the brother or sister that we're that we're dealing with. So when somebody or something within an institution or a machine or whatever it is is not pulling its weight, then sooner or later every part is going to feel the strain of that. Everything else, everyone else is going to be overworked and the whole thing's gonna to fall to pieces. Let me give you a few practical problems that comes with laziness. When somebody's lazy, it obviously uh, gives them more time to be mischievous, right? Laziness offers more time for mischief. Now, when I talk about mischief, again, bunny trail opportunity. We can talk about all the sorts of problems and trouble you can get into if you're lazy. You've heard the old adages before, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. I There was some Bible translation that even put it in there that says idle hands are the devil's workshop. I, I'm not sure that hands would be a workshop, maybe the devil's tools, but either way, you get the point. When it's just sitting around not being used as it should be, then it gives an opportunity for for the enemy to get in and use it for something wrong. But when people are not busy working, they have a lot of time to think of reasons why they shouldn't be working. Have you noticed that? Lazy people are the best excuse makers, the best. Let me give you a couple verses about laziness here from the book of Proverbs proverbs chapter 26 and verse 13 notice how it talks about him making excuses the slothful man saith there is a lion in the way a lion is in the streets all right let's think about this statement just for a minute is it possible that a lion is in the street is it possible well yes it is possible but what are the odds right i mean Really? That's why you won't leave the house and go to the field and work? Because there's a lion in the street. If I get up, if I go out, that's it, I'm going to be destroyed. This is just an excuse, a very extravagant, elaborate excuse for why you can't work. And society is filled with reasons, filled with excuses why people will not work. Uh, if we can make the, di- the the distinction here, a person who cannot work will offer a reason, but a person who will not work, doesn't want to work, will offer an excuse, something that everybody else looks at and says, "Really, that's why you're not going to work because of something like that." Now you tried to convince him that he's he's way off on this. You know what he's going to do? Let's come down to verse number. Yeah. Verse 16. There it is. Verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. See, they, they said, listen, here's a reason you should go work. Here's the actual facts about a lion being in the street. The odds of that are so low. Come on, man. Just get up and get on. Get get on with it. And this guy, he nobody's going to tell him otherwise. He's so wise and he thinks he's got it all figured out. He thinks he has a legitimate, in his mind, reason not to do things. It's just an excuse. Now, in biblical times, let me give you one of the excuses that, that people were offering for not working. And uh, you know that sometimes people, even they often, they, they use a, a religious or spiritual excuse for not uh, working hard. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. They that weep as though they wept not. They that rejoice as though they rejoice not. They that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it for the fashion of this world passeth away. You know what some of these early Christians were saying? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming any day. And since he is, there's no point in working and trying to make money. There's no point in paying my bills. You know, I'm just gonna be taken up with the Lord anyway, so I'll leave all my debts for the Antichrist, and who cares? That was the, they were using a biblical truth as an excuse not to work. Now you see, they didn't want to work. From the very beginning, God has set it up that mankind should work, right? Even before the fall, God creates Adam, he puts him in a garden that he should tend the garden. And then afterwards, he's still, after the fall, God tells Adam, you're still gonna work that ground, but you're gonna do it in the sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you. Have you ever wondered, guys, why it's so difficult? Pretty much any job you take, there's always these thorns and thistles popping up, always these irritating problems. Well, that's a result of sin. (laughs) But even you take sin out of the equation, mankind was meant to work. So when somebody says, I'm going to find an excuse not to work, th- this is one of the fundamental uh, things that God built into mankind to, to take that out. It's, it's taking out such an important foundational issue. It's going to destabilize your personal life, your home, your society, and the world at large. Eventually, if enough, pe- enough people take that, that position, everything begins to unravel. So these Christians, some of these Christians were saying, well, there's not much time left, so you know I'm not gonna do any work. And Paul says, guys, you need to have a balance. Now listen to me, you need to have a balance. Yes, Jesus is coming, but that doesn't mean give up your job, don't pay your bills. That doesn't mean Jesus is coming, so don't get married. That doesn't mean Jesus is coming, so now I can ignore my wife and just serve the Lord. You need a balance. He even says, look at it in verse number 31. They that use this world is not abusing it. So we're still in this world. We can still function. And that's why I mentioned back in Genesis 1 and 2, God set it up. Man, I've made you to have dominion over the earth to subdue it. Here, tend the garden. Take care of this place while you're here. So it is important that we function in society to keep things moving in the right direction. It is, that is not the world. That's not being worldly. That's using this world, but not abusing it. That's realizing that, okay, I'm not going to take any of my riches with me. My worldly success is not the most important thing, but I still have to function in this world. It's okay to work and it's right to work hard. So some believers were using the second coming of Christ as an excuse not to work. Now, you know what? Modern day excuse, I, I find this very, Frustrating, this victim mentality. Well, you know, somebody did this to somebody else, and because you know I'm disadvantaged, therefore I am not going to work. Now, they constantly are blaming others for their lack of opportunity. I get it. Listen, it's true. Sometimes we do find ourselves in difficult positions, and their disadvantages come our way, and things aren't as lekker as we'd like them to be. But you know what I've also noticed? That if somebody's willing to work hard, if they're industrious enough and apply themselves, strangely enough, opportunities tend to find them. It might take a little effort and work and time and patience, but opportunities generally find those kind of people. If we can, let me bring you back to 2 Thessalonians chapter three. This idea of this victim mentality that my problems is everybody else's fault. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be a productive member of society because of what everybody else has done. Blame them. You realize what this does. It, it creates friction between this group and that group. And now remember the purpose of the passage. We want peace with all men. The Lord of peace be with you all. Well, when you start pointing fingers and blaming, blaming somebody else, and it's, they didn't do anything. I, uh, forgive me, I got to get specific with this. But in America right now, there's this big push, you know, that the reason things are so bad in America is because of the disease of whiteness. The disease of whiteness. Now, without unpacking all of the nonsense behind that, let's just think this through. How can whiteness be a disease, right? The melanin levels in my skin, that, that has nothing to do with the actions that I take. But to say whiteness is the problem or any skin color is the problem, that's not helping, that's not creating peace. That's that's putting something between us. That's something to argue about. That's just frustration. That's just somebody using an excuse for not trying to make things work and not be productive. And it just destroys peace. I'll t- l- let me, because again, potential to bunny trail. I wanna I want stay on point as much I can, as much as I can. So a lazy person's gonna have more time for mischief. He's gonna get into all sorts of trouble, especially making excuses, blaming others. This is why I can't do it. And then one side gets to arguing with the other side. And I tell you, at the end of the day, listen, the sun's gonna come up the next day. Uh, things have to keep moving forward. So the, the people that are willing to work hard have to work even harder to pull the extra weight, to carry the extra load that freeloaders are not carrying. What does this do? It builds resentment. Then the ones that are working hard look at the ones that aren't and go, come on guys, why why won't you pitch in? And then they say, well, it's because of this and that. And it, It just creates argument, resentment, bitterness. Do you see how something very practical like one person or a group of people not working hard can unravel a society? And by the way, this is also true in a church. It's also true in a family. It's true in any business. If you have one spouse working hard and the other spouse isn't putting in the effort, it begins to unravel things. So this issue of laziness is actually, it's worth our attention for a little while today. So when industrious people, hardworking people have to put in more effort, it it lends itself to resentment, bitterness. And that by itself is enough to destroy whatever... Institution, whatever group, whatever person we're talking about. But there's, as Paul points out in verse 11, they're working not at all. And then there's another level to this. They become busybodies. What's a busybody? A busybody is somebody who looks busy. Their body is moving from place to place, right? So it looks like they're doing something. They're in this shop and then they go to that shop and then they're in this person's house and they're all the time moving. But in, in actual fact, the only thing that's moving is their mouth. <laughs> I mean, they're, their feet take them from one place to the next, but what's really working overtime is their mouth. Laziness doesn't always lead to being a busybody, but it certainly lends itself to it. It can lead to that, and it often does. Because that particular person who's lazy, he's not doing anything worth talking about. Right? So what does he do? He goes to somebody else's shop or house where they are doing something worth talking about. They are doing something that is interesting. And they just listen to this and take in this story and then they travel down the road and they retell that story. But they do it in such a way that will produce a bit of entertainment. Let me tell part of the story. Let me offer. Let me tell you what they're doing and then I'll try to tell you what their motive is for doing that. And they're stirring up trouble by repeating these stories that other people have no business knowing, busybodies. Now, I think that's what Paul's getting at here. That's what he had in mind when he wrote this, but can I just offer one practical little thought? Your boss, unless, unless you have a job as a teacher or a psychologist or a pastor, you're not paid to talk. Go to work. Don't just appear busy. Don't appear busy. Actually apply yourself and get the job done. I remember years ago when I was still part of the workforce, I had just been saved. I was so excited about the things of God and I had my Bible at my desk and everybody that came by my desk, I would offer them a gospel track and I would start witnessing to them and I held Bible studies in the break room and man, I was just pumped up. I wanted to to basically turn that workplace into a little church. And my boss, he'd come by my desk and he'd see my Bible out. And instead of me working on on the the files on my desk, I'm sitting there reading the book of Hebrews. He'd say, Mike, what you doing? Now this guy was a Christian. He said, what you doing? I said, I'm reading my Bible. And he said, you could tell how awkward and uncomfortable that was. He said, Mike, I'm really not one to say don't read the Bible, but we're not paying you to read the Bible. He's right. They weren't paying me to sit there and witness and study the Bible. They're paying me to do a job. So although I'm sitting in the desk, I'm I'm in the right posture. It looks like I'm busy, but in actual fact, I'm not busy doing what I should be doing. And again, do you see how that could build irritation, frustration, resentment? I become the weak chain. So even though you might have some decent motives, you got to be careful that you, you accomplish the task at hand. Now, coming back to the idea of being a busybody and meddling in other people's affairs, what, what often happens, and, and I've seen, it, it's quite interesting how people do it sometimes. They dress this up as a prayer request. Have you ever had this where somebody comes and says, hey, brother, uh, I don't know if you heard about so-and-so, but man, we really got to pray for him. Let me tell you what's happening. And then they go on and on and on. And again, when they tell the story, they, they, they I heard him say this, I saw him do that. But here's the problem with that. They don't tell you the whole story. If you were to ask person A, why are you doing this? If person B goes to person A and says, why did you do this? Why did you say, you can get the whole story. There's always more to the story, there's context to everything. But when you have person A and person B, and then you have the busybody in between, he takes the story from A, a few of the details, He didn't ask the questions as to why. And then he goes to person B and says, I heard him say this and that. And then all of a sudden person B starts getting upset, frustrated, Well, why is person A doing that? Why would he think that? Why would he say that? They didn't get the whole story. And now A and B are angry at each other and they haven't even spoken yet. They haven't even seen each other in a while, but they're angry at each other. Do you see how this destroys peace? The whole purpose of the passage just unravels because somebody's running their mouth and they dress it up as a prayer request. Isn't that fun? Oh, we gotta pray for them. Oh, this is bad. Well, you know what? There's other things we could do for them. We could actually put into practice, and we're gonna look at it in a minute, the procedures that God has given us to fix these kind of things. But running around from person A to person B is not helping. It's not helping. you, do you know who does this? Let me, let me, I want to show you guys a, a couple of verses on this. Stick with me here. I want to show you a verse or two. Um, you guys forgive me. I'm going to, th- this is going to be a little odd, but let me, I want to give you a little linguistic lesson real quick. All right. Can we do that? The word devil. The word devil. Let me show you the background of the word devil. Here we go. All right. Can you, uh, Let's see if I can keep it on the screen. Diabolos. Diabolos. And that word mean it means a traducer. Now that's a that's a new English word to me. I looked it up, and I'm going to show you what that means in a second. Specifically Satan, and then you can translate it false accuser, devil, or slanderer. Diabolos. Do you see the word there? Diabolos. Do you know what the devil does? In Revelation 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He goes to God and says, God, do you see what those people are doing? And he's, what is he trying to do? He's trying to get God against us. And then he comes down to man and says, look at what God's doing or not doing to you. Now, do you think the devil gives us the whole story? No. Do you think he gives us some of the story? Sure. All the way back in Genesis three, this is what the devil did. Yea, hath God said, ah, you'll not surely die. God knows that when you eat the fruit, you'll be as God's knowing good and evil. There's truth in that. That is what would happen. But he also put in a little bit of a lie. Well, not a little bit, a lot of a lie. You'll not die. You'll surely not die. That's a lie. What is he trying to do? He's trying to create separation between God and men. When somebody runs to and fro, isn't that what the devil does? In Job chapter one, when when Satan presented himself before the Lord, the Lord asked him, where have you been? What you been doing? He says, oh, going to and fro in the earth, running up and down in it. First Peter five, verse eight, our adversary, the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. What's he trying to do? I'm trying to just split people up just to destroy unity. That's what God wanted people to get along. So he's gonna come in and tell stories and make accusations and slander and twist the story a little bit and tell it just right so that people get upset and angry with each other. That's the devil. That's the devil. Now watch this. This same word, let's take a look at where else it's used. I'm in Titus chapter two. Let me take the, the Greek off of that. Titus chapter two, verse three, Paul's addressing, he's telling this pastor Titus what he should do, how he should teach various groups in the church. So dealing with the aged women he says the aged women likewise that they be in behavior as becometh holiness not false accusers not given to much wine teachers of good things. So in 2 Thessalonians 3 he was addressing lazy men and now to be you know gender equality he's addressing he's addressing women as well that have this issue. Not False accusers. Now, let me just switch this over just for a moment. I'm just trying to give you a big picture here. Look at the word that gives us false accusers. Do you see the two words here? False accusers. Look at the word. Diabolos. Sorry, I keep making it go away. Diabolos. That's the word for devil. Don't be little devils. Don't do the work of the devil you get lazy you don't have enough to do listen if you were industrious and hardworking you wouldn't have time to run to and fro you'd be busy doing something something substantial something worth talking about when you get home but these folks because they're lazy it leads to meddling you go from this place to that place running your mouth destroying unity splitting people apart let me take this off let me show you another verse here and 1 Timothy 5 where Paul's dealing with a similar issue. Here he's dealing with, with widows. If I can type this properly. He's dealing with widows and, and which ones you should support. And, and then he's gonna explain why you don't wanna support a younger lady, right? Even though she might be a widow, she is young enough, she can get remarried. And, and then he explains why, And this is part of it. 1 Timothy 5 verse 13, and withal they learn to be idle. People learn that. You know why? Because society and, if I can, society at large and the church as a microcosm of that, because society and the church do not treat laziness like it should be treated. They put up with it. And by putting up with it, we teach people it's okay to be idle. Man, it's not. With all they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. You know what they're doing? They're, they're, what they are saying, it might be true, but here's the thing, why does that other person need to know it? What are you trying to accomplish by repeating that story? These tattlers, these busybodies, they're not trying to create peace. They're not trying to encourage anybody. Just breaking people down, creating friction, anger, bitterness, wrath. If you're trying to help, what you're going to do is you're going to tell the right person the whole story. Better yet, what you should do is I'm concerned about so-and-so. Would you, the person who can actually do something about it, whoever that might be in that case, would you please go and speak to so-and-so and then back away? Now, listen, I cannot speak to the motives of your heart, why you repeat the stories that you do. I'm giving you this from the Bible today so that you can check your own heart. If you know the overall purpose to create peace with all, right, with God, with men, that should help you put into focus why you are repeating the stories that you are. Now let's come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter three. And we're gonna go back to verse six just for a moment because the next thing we wanna talk about Oh, there, I gave you that. So I'm so sorry, I forgot the slide. The word traduce, it means to speak badly or tell lies about someone so as to, uh, to damage their reputation. I think I've already pretty much explained that in the previous point, so I won't spend time on that. But very true. You don't want to be a Diabolos. I think I even misspelled it there, but I just put diabolos. Uh, in Spanish, I think that's that's how you would write the word. All right, point number three, we're gonna talk about the pattern. So if we want to have a biblical work life, how can I work my job biblically? So we don't wanna be lazy. We don't wanna meddle and be a busybody. So how should we do it? Verse six, let me just point a couple things out. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul's about to say about working and about how to treat a lazy man. We have verses, we have uh, commandments from the Lord about these things. Jesus has given Paul authority to teach on it, but Jesus himself also taught on it. Uh, Verse seven, Paul uses himself. I've seen, you can see below me here, point three, the pattern that we follow. Jesus Christ and Paul offer the pattern. For yourselves, and verse seven, yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Paul was a hard worker. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught. So if he did uh, take bread from somebody, he paid for it. And Paul had to work a job. We know he was a tent maker. So even though he's full-time in the ministry, he's also full-time at work. He said, we wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. And verse nine, you can see we did this to be an example to you. Come down to verse 12 with this. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can take some of the words of Christ, some of his clear commands, but we can also look at the example he set. Now, just for the sake of time, guys, forgive me. I briefly touched on what Paul did as an example. Full-time ministry, full-time work, paid his own way just to set the example. I'm gonna spend a little bit more time talking about the pattern that Christ gave us Let me show you a couple verses about this in Matthew chapter 20 and verse five. I wanted to say verse five, it's verse six. And before we read this, can I just ask you this? Men, women, because both are, it's perfectly fine for both to be in the workforce, in the workplace. Uh, Have you ever studied the Bible for how to be a good employee? For how to do your job in a God-pleasing, God-honoring way? And, and I say this knowing that in our church, we have a lot of hard workers. We do. Very hard workers. I'd almost say too hard of workers. You can overwork. You can overdo it. Amen. Amen. I have the strangest feeling now that there are some wives turning to their husbands going, I told you so. But it's true. You can overdo it. So yes, I'm sure that there might be a lazy person listening to this that, needs to hear something about that. But but also as we study the pattern for being a biblically working person and walking orderly as it pertains to your job, bear in mind that you can overdo it. You wanna get the right balance in this. So notice what Jesus says, he's he's offering a parable here, but the lesson of it comes at what I'm pointing out at the end of the verse. About the 11th hour he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, why stand ye here all the day idle? Why why haven't you found a job? Now, they offer a reason. They say to him, because no man hath hired us. Well, I mean, that is a legitimate reason. Listen, there's no job that, that, that came our way. You would maybe ask, why didn't you go looking for the job? right? Why are you just standing here? There's maybe more you could do to find a job, to get busy. But we, we see in this the heart of Jesus. Why are you just standing here all day? Find something to do. Now, this applies not just in in society, not just secular work, but also even in a church. Why is it you just sit there in the pew idle? Nobody gave me anything to do. Well, go find something to do. Go ask someone, what can I do? How can I get involved? There is a lot that can be done if you'll take the initiative to go and ask. Uh, Let's take a look at what Jesus said about labor here. Luke chapter 10, verse seven, in the same house remain. He's, he's telling his apostles to go out and preach. In the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. Remember, I, that's why I showed you the verse in 1 Timothy 5. You're not just going to bounce around from place to place. That lends itself to problems. Rather, you go into a house where they want to take care of you, it's fine. A lot, you can receive their generosity. There's no problem with that because you're working for it. You're in that town to preach and to minister to people. The labor is worthy of his hire. When Paul quotes this in in 1 Timothy, he says the labor is worthy of his reward. So, hard work should be rewarded. As a society, we should we should be mindful of that. We should this they call this meritocracy. We we should support and affirm the idea of somebody working hard to get ahead. The idea of of this equality of outcome, doesn't matter how hard you work, it doesn't matter how hard you trained, everybody should end up with the same amount and the same things. That's just a fancy way of saying Marxism and communism. And then don't you see how that would break down my enthusiasm towards working hard? If, it, if it's all gonna work out the same in the end anyway, well, then what's the point? I'm all for equality of opportunity. But what that means then is the guy who wants to work hard and has prepared him or herself, then give them a chance. Let him work hard and then bless him, reward him for his labor by all means. Look at the example we have in, in Jesus himself. We know, remember this in, in, in John chapter, uh, Luke chapter two, Jesus is 12 years old and Mary comes and finds him in the temple. And he's asking questions to the doctors and lawyers. And she says, you know, why'd you do this? Why why didn't you come with us when we left Jerusalem? And he said, I must be about my father's business. From the age of 12, he was busy doing what God wanted him to do. Now, at the end of his life, John 17, four, look what Jesus says. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He was busy working. That's the pattern he gave us. He worked hard. However, because I know to whom I'm speaking this morning, Jesus also took a break from time to time. Jesus would pull away. He would go off into a desert place or he would go up to Tyre, T-Y-R-E, go up to a place called Tyre next to Sidon. Why would he do that? That's outside of the, like the, uh, the, the not city limits, country limits of, of Israel. Why do that? He's trying to break away to, to get a little bit of rest. In Mark chapter six, it's called leisure. Leisure, I think you guys call it. So although he's very busy doing the father's business, at the same time, he realizes from time, you know, here and there, I need to take a break so that I can finish the work. So I'm just trying to offer you some balance in this. The pattern is work hard, but watch this. Jesus was not focused. His primary focus was not worldly success. Wouldn't it have been great if everybody he preached to repented? I mean, wasn't that, isn't that what God desires? The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So yes, that'd be great. Did it happen? No. Did Jesus consider himself unsuccessful? No, because what was the big, what was the the primary, the most important thing about being on this earth? It wasn't how many people repent. It's not about meeting quotas. The most important thing to Jesus was maintaining this loving relationship with the Father. Everybody else forsakes him, but he says, Father, I know you'll never forsake me. You're ever with me. Lord, I've done what's pleased you. That was Jesus's main focus. Our relationship with God must be more important than the work we're doing. So if we follow the pattern set down by Jesus and by Paul, We follow that example, not just their teachings, although that's enough to get the job done, but the the way that they went about working their jobs. Jesus was a carpenter, right? Well before he became a preacher, he spent more of his life in the workforce as a carpenter before he went to being a prophet and a preacher and and eventually dying for our sins. But this brings me to the last point here in 2 Thessalonians 3. And I want to bring you back again to verse number six. And we're going to talk about the procedure. The procedure. All right, how do we go about fixing this? Point four the procedure. There should be a punishment, there should be a pulling away. As you can see here in verse number six we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Now we see it again. Scrolling, sorry, verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now, obviously, I, I mentioned it earlier, verse 15. You got to do it with the right attitude. You're not trying to treat him like an enemy, but you're admonishing him as a brother. So there's a procedure. When somebody gets out of line and starts living an unbiblical life on purpose, right? It's not that they can't do it, they won't do it. They, they're they living in open rebellion to the word of God. You cannot just let that slide. You have to do something. Now, there's a, I, the reason I've chosen the word procedure, you're gonna find other verses for how to go about this. You don't just pull away and avoid that person without first taking some other steps. The Bible says to warn the unruly. So you need to go to them and, and admonish him, talk to him and say, brother, this is not how, Life goes, you, you can't do it like this. Here's why. You have a calm, civil conversation about it. The Bible, Jesus told us in Matthew 18, if somebody's doing something offensive, you go to him alone. If he doesn't listen to that, take two or three. If he doesn't listen to that, take it to the church. There's a procedure. But do we follow that? Do we recognize that when that procedure is happening to us, when somebody approaches us in love, trying to say, listen, this part of your life is not right, they're trying to help, they're not trying to be the enemy. They're trying to treat us like a loving brother. Unfortunately, the way it works out these days, when somebody comes, especially if I can draw it into the lesson of, of this passage, somebody's lazy, they're not willing to work, they come and say, please help me, you know, they, they want the handout. And then you say, no, I'm sorry, I am not going to perpetuate the problem. If I give you the help you're asking for, you're just gonna get stuck in this ugly cycle and you're gonna think that it's okay to be lazy. So no, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna help. Then they start, I, I, I hate this accusation, but they say, oh, you're not being very Christian-like. Oh, man. Here's the problem. On what basis are you making that accusation? What verse am I violating? The idea of pulling away or, or, because the Bible says to withdraw, it says to avoid him. But in other places, it says, put him out, right? So so you, you would not let him be part of the church membership and part of the assembly until they get this thing right. If they're op- openly living in sin, you put him out. Why do this? You're basically giving him a timeout. Have you guys ever, you've I've no doubt heard of that, but this is something that we, you think about when you're dealing with parents punishing their kids you either give them a whooping a hiding a pox law or you give them a time out i must admit for a long time i thought yeah timeout that's not biblical that's something the world created and you know you just use the rod i don't know i the more i think about that there, there i think there's something to the whole timeout thing i think you need discretion when to use what because pulling away from somebody not fellowshipping with them sends a very strong message isn't this what god did in Genesis chapter three, there were some physical punishments, right? The woman has pain, the man has to work in the garden and stuff and thorns and thistles. But then God said, you guys got to go. Yes, I've covered you with the animal skins, but I'm sorry. You cannot live in my presence here. And he kicked them out of the garden. He says, I want you to go live somewhere else. He pulled away, he pulled away. This happens with your parents do it with their kids. You go to your room. What's happening is I'm learning that if I act like this, if I say these things, then I'm not allowed in somebody's presence. This makes them, this upsets them and we can't get along if I'm doing this. It's a necessary punishment. It happens with the spouses, doesn't it? Man or the wife, either way. Somebody's acting disorderly, then the other person doesn't wanna spend time there. The boss can suspend a worker. Say, listen, you can't come back to work until this comes right. The headmaster of a school can suspend a student if they start acting like this. Even within society, the police can arrest you and put you in jail. That's a massive timeout. 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. You go stay there for a while. Think about what you've done. It's a legitimate punishment. You say, but brother Mike, aren't we supposed to just give grace, you know, be gracious. Somebody's not living right. Shouldn't we just Be kind and nice anyway. Let's talk about grace for a moment. Grace is receiving something you didn't earn, right? Uh, It's it's something you don't deserve, which is great. And and these are just my definitions. I'm putting it in my own words. The help you receive to do something you could not do otherwise. That's another way of saying, God gave me grace. What do we mean? I didn't have strength to do it. God gave me strength to do it, all right? Here's what grace is not. It's not helping or giving to those who refuse to do what they what they can do or what they could do. So as I mentioned earlier, you don't give the lazy man the food or the money or whatever he's asking for. It just perpetuates the laziness. Grace is God looking down and going, you poor sinner. There's nothing you can do to fix this. So I'm gonna step in and do something for you that you don't deserve. And I'm gonna give you the necessary help so that you can get that thing done, whatever that thing is. You know, years ago, this is exactly how it worked for me. I realized somebody explained it to me from the Bible and I realized that I don't deserve to be with God. I don't deserve to be in His presence both now and in eternity. I deserve to be punished and be out of his presence and in the lake of fire forever. And when somebody explained to me what Christ did, that he he came down, he took my sins on himself. He went to the cross. He took my punishment. He suffered in my place. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my sins were upon him. I, I, listen, I did not go to Christ and say, you know what? Uh, I don't want to do anything about my sinful problem. So can you do something about it? Do, do, look, that's not how salvation works. That's not how you develop a relationship with God. That's not how you get saved. You don't go and say, I, I don't want to do anything about it. So God, you do it. God's not going to respond to that in a positive way. I went to God and said, God, I'm so sorry for the way I am. I realized that you created me to be one way and I'm the opposite way and I'm so sorry. And I would love to do something about it, but no matter how hard I try, I can't. I cannot fix myself. I don't have the tools, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the payment for my sins. God, I don't want to spend eternity away from you. I want to live in your presence now and forever. Please, God, is there anything you can do for me? And God smiles down from heaven and says, you don't worry. What you can't do, my grace is sufficient to take care of that. I've sent my son to pay for your sins and to live inside of you so that you, those things that you struggle with and Having a hard time overcoming, I'm gonna help you overcome those things so that we can walk together now and forever. Do, do you see the difference? The person who says, I don't care, I don't want to change, man, I let God do whatever he wants to do. That's wow, wow, wow. God's not gonna step in and perpetuate that. But the man, the woman who comes to God and says, God, I'm sorry, I would change if I could, but I can't, please help. That's that's the man. That's the woman where the Lord of peace steps in and gives him or her peace by all means. And I wonder if you've accepted that kind of grace today. If we come across a case and listen, if it's a church or if it's something, someone in your own life, it may not be comfortable. You may not wanna take the step and we, we want to avoid pulling away from people, but that's the best thing you can do to get, sometimes to get their attention so that you can come back, have a good conversation about it, and say, this is why we haven't fellowshiped in a while. This is what needs to come right because I want to dwell together in peace and unity. I want us to get along. How can we fix it? What can I do to help you? What can I do that you can't? That is what God wants to do for you today the things that you're not able to do because you just lack the strength, the God of all grace, the God of all peace, he can step in and offer you the help you need. Father, please help us today. There's a lot in this chapter I think that we can practically apply. Lord, it can be frustrating. We look around us and people sometimes aren't pulling their weight. Lord, help those that are frustrated by that to to be not weary in well-doing. Lord, help us to approach such people, especially when they are our brethren, there are other members in our church, help us to approach them as a brother and not as an enemy. Lord, help us to strive for that peace that you desire between all men. Lord, thank you for the great grace that you showed us there by sending your son to do what we could not do. Lord, please help us. We have a lot, a lot more to do, a lot more to learn today Help us today to live in your presence. God, what a blessing that is. Help us not to take it for granted that you would actually come down and fellowship with us. Lord, allow us today to enjoy your fellowship and the fellowship of the people you've put around us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.